some of you probably know that during the Olympics, there are so many events, you know, some of which um, you might not even be familiar with until you just happen to you know, catch a glimpse of you know, maybe a recounting of some of what happened. You're like, I didn't even know there was an event for that. Well, this might not fall under that category for all of you, but maybe for some of you it does. But rifle shooting is an event that is in the Olympics. And back in 2004, there was a a rifle shooter who was known to be, to quote one article, one of the best shooters in the history of American shooting. And when you look at the way in which things worked out for him in that Olympics, it's rather interesting. He had, uh, at least so to speak, polar opposite um, outcomes in at least two events. In one event, he was um, able to win a gold medal in the 50-meter rifle competition, even though, as he says, his gun had been tampered with. So his gun had been tampered with, at least that's what he had said, and I read a quote from him that said, you know, I would have liked to have thanked the saboteur. Like, I wish I would have known who he was, because he ended up using uh, a teammate's gun, and he ended up winning a gold medal. So that was like one amazing turn of events, so to speak. Providence, common grace providence on display right there. But then, in another event, one that happened uh, two days after winning that gold medal, he was in the uh, men's 50-meter rifle three-position final, and he went into his last shot with a notable advantage, a large advantage. If I'm remembering correctly, all he had to do was hit the target to basically ensure the gold medal for himself. But what happened on that occasion was that he hit a target. It just happened to be a competitor's target. It's one of those things that you just really don't see happen, happening in sports, that he actually shot at the wrong target, hit a competitor's target, ended up dropping, I believe, down to eighth place, and then somebody else ended up winning the gold medal. So in that Olympics, he had the joy of winning a gold medal, even though somebody arguably tampered with his weapon. And then you have an event like that where he's that close, and he's that close to winning another gold medal, but ends up aiming and hitting the wrong target. It wouldn't have mattered how on point the shot was. If it was a proverbial bullseye or a literal bullseye, if it went right where it needed to go, it wouldn't have mattered because it was the wrong target. And the reason why I mention that today is I think, my opinion, I'm giving you my opinion now, I think that in the world in which we are living, though I think this could apply to any generation, there are so many things that are pulling at a Christian's line of sight so that you target things that aren't the main thing. And there's so many things that are pulling at, at, at our attention. Now, I'm not saying those things are necessarily bad or that you don't pay any attention to them. I'm just saying they're not the main thing. And they could be things that you target as a result of having your eyes on the main thing. And the main thing, I would argue, is that for those of you who are in Christ Jesus, with your sins forgiven, Jesus Christ having paid the debt that you can never pay, and you've been reconciled to God through Jesus Christ, the one who died for your sins and rose from the grave, I would say, using language from the Apostle Paul, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9, that we make it our aim to be well-pleasing to Him. Right? Because we're not trying to earn heaven. Christ has secured the forgiveness of sins for us. That's taken care of. I'm not trying to earn it. Jesus Christ secured it with His own blood and His victorious resurrection. Well, then what's the aim of our lives? Is it the preservation of our own lives? And I think that's one of the things that will be gnawing at the heels of Christians in these days. And we would do well to remember Jesus' words during the Sermon on the Mount. Do not worry about what you shall eat and drink. You know, the Gentiles, in that context, Jesus speaking about those who don't, don't know God, they run after those things. I'm not saying not to be prudent. 
I'm not saying that the wise man doesn't foresee the danger and avoid it. I'm not saying to take Joseph-like steps in these days and to do what you can to say, you know, buy goods at a price now and the cost of inflation is going higher and they're going to be double maybe come September. I'm not telling you not to do those things. I'm just telling you not to chase those things. It shouldn't be your aim. It shouldn't be like, all right, now I have to figure out how to survive. How do we survive if this happens? How do we survive if that happens? How do we survive if this happens? Where do we got to go? Where do we got to move? What do we got to get? What do we got to buy? And then all of a sudden you are pulled in all of these directions that you're not focusing your line of sight at the main thing. And then through the main thing, those other things will be taken care of in a proper and right way. So again, you say, well, then what is the main thing? We make it our aim, as those who have been forgiven, we're not trying to earn heaven. Jesus Christ secured it. We make it our aim to be well-pleasing to him. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9. That was a priority. It was a priority that made its way into the prayers in which the Apostle Paul prayed for the church. He prayed that Christians... And I would say, by the way, just as a note, that would be among the main things, right? If you're making your aim to please God, what is that connected to? Loving God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, even though we don't do that perfectly. Trusting God. All of those things are pleasing in his sight. But it was a priority that made its way into the Apostle Paul's prayers. He prayed for the Colossians that they would be, that they would walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Colossians chapter 1, verse 10. It was a priority of his teaching, and it was a priority of his exhortation. You look at what he said to the Thessalonians. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 1, he says, Finally then, brethren, we urge and exhort in the Lord Jesus that you should abound more and more, just as you received from us, how you ought to walk and to please God. That kind of thinking makes life purposeful as opposed to directionless. It makes life fruitful and not wasted. And it provides occasion after occasion for rightly placed joy instead of misplaced happiness. Rightly placed joy instead of misplaced happiness. And sometimes, and this kind of gets us towards Psalm 18, sometimes it could be the means for God-appointed deliverance, temporally speaking. David said, He delivered me because He delighted in me. So how am I connecting this with Psalm 18, this kind of intro? Because usually the intros are tightly tethered to what we're about to study. This one, mm, you've got to do a little bit of thinking to get there, and I'll show you why I'm saying this. Because what we're going to see in this text has a lot of application for Christian living. We're going to see different ways we in which, as Christians, should live so as to please God. And, and, and David's going to come at this in different angles. And I think it's so important for us that if we are going to live in a way that pleases God, we have to have our minds renewed. Because how is our behavior going to be changed? It's going to be changed as our thinking is changed. We are not conformed to this world, but we are to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And my hope is that even as we've seen David talk about his behavior and how God used his behavior to bring about a temporal deliverance for him, we might be encouraged to embrace some God-honoring, spirit-wrought behavioral modification today. The primary intention of our lives, at least in large part, should be to grow in the grace of purposefully pursuing to please God. And I think verses 25 through 29 give us some great instruction as to how we are to do that. 
As we make our way into the text, by way of brief reminder, in the first 19 verses of Psalm 18, we essentially saw David describe his God and his deliverance. Now, there's a lot more that could be said. We took three messages to go through those verses, so I'm leaving a lot out. But in sum, David described his God and his deliverance in those verses, in verses 1 through uh, 19. And we were provided, if you remember, with an amazing impetus to pray. David using this poetic and metaphoric language that is based upon historical events in the scriptures, at least in, in large measure, um, is such a motivation to pray. Then we recall in verses 20 through 24 that David was speaking about God rewarding him not with eternal life, but with God rewarding him with temporal deliverance for his relative righteousness. For instance, he had behaved righteously with regards to Saul. He didn't take his hand to Saul. He didn't seek revenge. He didn't depart from his God and become an apostate. So with respect to that situation, relatively, God rewarded his righteousness. So David's speaking about his own experience in verses 20 through 24. And from that, now we're going to enter into verses where he's going to do some didactic teaching. He is going to teach some principles of how God deals generally, though not always and exclusively, in light of what he experienced. We'll see that as we get into the text. We begin in Psalm 18, verses 25 and 26, where we read, With the merciful, you will show yourself merciful. With a blameless man, you will show yourself blameless. And with the pure, you will show yourself pure. And with the devious, you will show yourself shrewd. So the first thing to note, if you're going through this and you're trying to understand what's going on in this psalm, I want you to note right here in these verses, we have a teaching section, right? So David spoke about his personal experience in verses 20 through 24. Now in light of that, he is going to provide principles that were at work in his deliverance. Because the reader of this, or the psalm singer, might have made the wrong conclusion, drawn the wrong conclusion. They might have said, you know what, that's how God worked with David. David was a unique case. David was a man after God's own heart. David was anointed to be king over Israel. David was a type of Christ. So David was a unique case, and that was good for David, but that doesn't necessarily apply to me in any way, shape, or form. And David is basically saying here, no, there are principles that were at work in my deliverance principles that were at work. God does deal differently, differently with individuals. And I, I mentioned that last week. You see that in the Old Testament and New Testament. In Acts chapter 12, right? You see James beheaded by Herod earlier in the chapter. And then you see Peter is delivered later on in the chapter. In the Old Testament, I think one of the greatest examples of how God just deals differently with people, the prophet Elijah is taken up to heaven in a chariot. Then the prophet Elisha, who followed him, dies of a sickness. So God deals differently with individuals. But there are nonetheless existing biblically revealed principles as to how God does deal with people. And these revealed principles are meant to encourage obedience and fidelity to God. So in short, if you were to look at verses 25 and 26, in short, you could summarize it like this. God will often, though not exclusively and not always and indefinitely, but God will often deal with an individual in the way in which that individual deals with others, 
and in the way in which that individual deals with God. It's part of the administration of God's justice in the world oftentimes. His administration of blessedness or his administration of justice. We'll walk through the text and we'll see that unpacked further. Verse 25, the first line, it reads, With the merciful, you will show yourself merciful. Now, that's reminiscent of uh, the beatitude that many of us are probably familiar with. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Now, the word that's used here in the Hebrew text for merciful is a word that can speak of being pious or kind. As the NIV renders it, could be rendered as faithful. could be rendered as it is here, merciful. Some say that it has the nuance of showing kindness to ones who have done you wrong. That could be part of the nuance of this word. It's a word that's used to describe God himself. It's a word that's used to describe God himself in Jeremiah 3, verse 12. It's also used to describe God in Psalm 145, verse 17. It's a word that's used to describe God's godly ones. You see that in a bunch of places in the Psalter. We've already seen it. Psalm 4, verse 3. Psalm 12, verse 1. It's connected with the word for steadfast love. So it's a word that's connected with the covenantal relationship that God enters into with his people where he shows covenantal, faithful, loving kindness to such a one. And what we see here is that when a person is in the habit, by God's grace, of showing kindness and mercy and compassion, they will often find in the here and now the kindness, mercy, and compassion of God manifested to them. Again, this is part of God's divine administration, generally speaking. Generally speaking. The next line, with a blameless man, you will show yourself blameless. There's a word we've already seen in our study of the psalm. The word blameless here basically means to be complete or upright or sound. Blameless does not mean sinless, right? Blameless means somebody who is essentially above reproach. What you see is what you get. They're not a hypocrite. They're not living one way in front of your eyes and then another way duplicitously outside of your view. This word means somebody who is complete and whole and sound. It speaks of an individual who shows, say, for instance, wholehearted devotion towards God even though they don't have perfection. And such a one will often perceive God's wholehearted devotion back towards them. Now to think of it in a horizontal way, if one is upright in his or her dealings with others, such a one will often find God to be, in their experience, by way of their perception, upright in his dealing with them. To be sure, God is always faithful and just. He's always upright. But there's a sense in which God, according to his will, recompenses a man according to his deeds. And God's dealings with a just man will be seen to be without reproach. It's kind of getting at the idea of the text here. Verse 26, we read, With the pure, you will show yourself as pure. The Hebrew word here for pure speaks of those who are pure in, say, their motives, pure in their actions, pure in their behavior. could speak of somebody who's free from mixture. Right, pure, again, not duplicitous, not hypocritical, somebody who is pure, reminds us again of the Beatitudes. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. This is not a purity by nature. None of us are pure by nature. We all have a sinful, fallen nature. This purity is not a sinless perfection. None of us have a sinless perfection, and we won't until we enter into glory. But this purity is, if you will, an overall description of a person's behavior or thinking. 
right? It's more the trajectory of a person's life. It's not, their, it's not that they're perfect, it's that they have a trajectory of purity, as opposed to sitting in the mud, proverbially speaking, right? There's a difference between sitting in the mud and saying, I'm going to walk through life and I'm going to get dirty and I'm going to do my best to wash up, as it were, by repenting and thanking God for the blood of Christ and so on. This is a practical purity. And those who walk in purity, per the text here with the pure, you will show yourself as pure. Those who walk in purity will often find God to prove himself or show himself as pure. And if you're like, well, what does all that mean? How do I kind of understand that? I think you can begin to better understand it when you look at the last line of verse 26. Look at the last line of verse 26. last line of verse 26 says, And with the devious you will show yourself as shrewd. So what was happening in the previous lines are essentially the opposite of what's happening in this line. That word for devious here, it's a word in the Hebrew that basically means twisted or crooked. So for the person who deals in a crooked way, in a twisted way, they will often find God to show himself as shrewd. So what do you mean by that? Think, for instance, as quite a few commentators noted, think, for instance, of Jacob. I think Eric Lane put it well when he said he, speaking of Jacob, acted craftily towards Esau, but met his match in Laban, who tricked him more than once. Derek Kidner agreed, saying the principle is illustrated by God's use of Laban to educate Jacob. So you think of like Jacob, he's acting devious towards Esau, but then he ends up getting deceived by Laban. And God and his superintending of providence so ordered it that way. You can think of the shrewdness, or the deviousness better said, of somebody like Haman. Right? Setting up the situation in such a way where Mordecai would hang on the gallows and doing it in such a way where he appears to be somebody who's advising the king for his good and how best to administrate his kingdom. And he's acting so devious, but then God in his super sovereign his superintending of history uses his own deviousness to bring about his demise. And that's essentially the idea of what we see here. It's essentially the principle that those who walked contrary to God will find that God is contrary to them. God, as we know, can also providentially cause the evil of an individual to boomerang, coming back upon them after they had cast it upon or in the direction of others. So the sum of the matter would be God will often deal with an individual in the way that that individual deals with others. Okay, so if that's the sum of the matter here, how do you begin to understand this as a New Testament Christian and how do you begin to apply it? First, let me say this. If you're reading through verses 25 and 26 and you say, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh, why are you saying "Uh uh-oh? Maybe you're saying, oh, because you're like, well, I do not want God to treat me the way I treat other people. Well, I have good news for you. Stop treating other people that way. The the good news is that there's a change that can happen in this moment. When all of a sudden you say, like, that's how God will deal with me? Not exclusively and not solely, but it is a principle that he puts into effect in the way that he governs the administration, his administration of the universe. So if you say, well, I don't want God to treat me the way I treat other people, then you got good news. All you got to do, by the grace of God, treat other people in the way you want to be treated. I mean, that's something Jesus spoke about during the Sermon on the Mount. He said, in everything... Therefore, treat people in the same way you want them to treat you, for this is the law and the prophets. Matthew chapter 7, verse 12. 
The, the idea being, you'd keep the law and the prophets. It's kind of like how all the law and the prophets hang on those two great commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. You do these things, you keep the law. Well, the, the vertical aspect of this, or the horizontal aspect of this, is if you treat people the way you want to be treated, then you're fulfilling the law, at least with respect to its horizontal expectations. No one does that perfectly but we're nonetheless to strive for it. Likewise, and what's often referred to or sometimes referred to as the Sermon on the Plain, uh, the level place, Jesus said, and just as you want men to do to you, you also do likewise to them. Luke chapter 6, verse 31. To be sure, Jesus is not calling people to some kind of Christianized version of karma. That's not what he's calling people to. There's a biblical principle of sowing and reaping that is in effect under God's administration of the universe. But he's basically teaching his people how to live. Within the context of the Sermon on the Mount, he's teaching his people how to be kingdom citizens. What does it look like to be a a citizen of the kingdom of God? When you're in the kingdom and forgiven of your sins, how do you live this out? How do you actually live the Christian life? One of the principles that you have in your mind is you treat people the way in which you want to be treated. Right? So just think about the ways in which this would work out in your own life as a Christian as you think about this. If you want people to be kind to you, well, then what's your next step? Not to get them to be kind, but you just say, well, that's a kind of a cue for me to be kind to others. If you want people to help you, well, that's a cue for you and your obedience to Christ is, not trying to, I'm not trying to do this to get help, but I'm going to do this because it's the right thing to do. It's what I would want somebody to do for me. I'm going to go help somebody else. The list could go on and on. If you want people to call you, people don't call me that much. Right? I'm not saying me. But, but you say, people don't call me. Call someone. Not because if I call somebody, then they'll call me back. I can kind of work this whole providential thing that God does to my advantage. No, no, no. It's just a cue for you to be a kingdom citizen. It's helping you to know what you are to do. There would be people, by the way, who would say, and, and there must be at least one person in here, because there's usually somebody who would say something like this, I just don't care how people treat me. Not a big deal for me. So you know how I'm going to treat people? The way I want to be treated? I want to be left alone, therefore I'm going to leave people alone. That's what I'm going to do. You, your preference doesn't have the ability to, you know, um, to override the scriptures. Right? There's an expectation of what we would want in relationships rightly and what God demands of us in relationships with other people, and that's the standard. So don't trick yourself and say, you know what, my standard is different, therefore I'll meet my own standard. No, no, no. You want to meet the standard that God has set. Though generally speaking, um, this instruction will fit more people than not, generally speaking. Um, you and I are called to treat people how God has commanded us to treat people, so... Our personal preferences that run counter to God's revelation do not trump God's revelation. Second, I want us to note about these verses. As New Testament Christians, uh, a driving impetus to do these things is not what we hope to receive, but it's what we have received. That's what's so important. Like We're living on the other side of the cross. So when we read here, okay, with the merciful, God will show himself as merciful. We're thinking of this in light of the mercy that God has shown to us. We're thinking of the parables that Jesus taught of a man being forgiven of his you know, great debt and then not forgiving somebody else of a smaller debt. And we say to ourselves, how could I ever do that? I have to show mercy to others because of the mercy that was shown to me. So for a Christian, that's where you start. You say, I'm going to show mercy to others by the grace of God because I've received mercy. That's where it starts as a Christian. 
Forgiveness is a great example of that. In the New Testament, we see, just even after Jesus teaches His disciples how to pray, the Lord's Prayer, what's often referred to as the Disciples' Prayer. You look in Matthew chapter 6. You look in verses 14 and 15. He then tells His disciples and instructs them that if they don't forgive men their trespasses, their Heavenly Father will not forgive them of their trespasses. And Jesus is not teaching in that moment while salvation is by both grace through faith alone and forgiving people. It's not what he's saying. He's essentially teaching the principle, the forgiven are forgiving. That's the principle that he's teaching. The merciful are those who have received mercy. And I think it's important that we see this as New Testament Christians in that right way. Though understanding that oftentimes God will deal with us according to the way in which we deal with Him and the way in which we deal with others while our salvation is secure in Christ Jesus. Now third, I do want to just reinforce the vertical dynamic of this and again remind us that it's a New Testament principle as well. There's a vertical dynamic that we should not miss. In 1 Samuel 2.30... Uh, chapter 2, verse 30, we read the following. Therefore the Lord God of Israel says, I, in, I said indeed that your house and the house of your father would walk before me forever. But now the Lord says, Far be it from me. For those who honor me I will honor, and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. So do not only think about verses 25 and 26 as horizontal. Just It's, it's all about the way in which we deal with People. No, that could have application to the way in which we deal with God. If we put God on the back burner, right, of our lives, like in this perpetual, unrepentant kind of way, we shouldn't be surprised if we feel as though, feel as though, God has put us on the back burner. Now again, these are just general principles. Sometimes you can be walking with God and like Job was. Job was a righteous man. He was upright in all his ways. And then all of a sudden, painful providence comes upon him. Not because it was like a boomerang that he deserved. It was just what happened. It was God's administration. The man who was born blind in John chapter 9, right? They, they, they were asked, uh, who sinned? This man or his parents? Neither, but that the glory of God might be seen in him. So don't make the mistake of thinking that you can interpret God's providential dealings with anyone else or yourself perfectly, it's just a principle of how God often works. Say in the example of Jacob or say in the example of David, the blessedness that, that followed David when he obeyed God with relationship to, say, Saul and the way in which God dealt shrewdly with Jacob and how he used Laban to do so. Just a principle of how God administrates his universe. Well, you could look at other New Testament texts and see how they would apply to one degree or another. Matthew chapter 7, verse 2 for with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure you used, it will be measured back to you. James 2.13, for judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy, but mercy triumphs over judgment. And so I would say by way of application, if you say, okay, getting all that, how do we actually apply this? I think it's by way of two things. I think we remember the mercy that we've received and we seek to walk in the mercy that God calls us to. And then by the grace of God, Who knows how mercy might be shown to us, temporally speaking, throughout our lives. And doubtless, there are so many examples that we have every day. So you haven't been a recipient of those things. You seek to walk in those things. And I think, too, I think it helps us to stay away from treating others in a way we shouldn't treat them. Because don't think it goes unnoticed by God. Because you could be loved, forgiven of your sins forever because you're in Christ Jesus. But you're still a child, and whom the Father loves, He chastises. 
So don't think that you can get away with treating other people the way that you wouldn't want to be treated. If we got that concept, you know what, I think in large measure, by God's grace, in this church, that shows itself in the way that the body of Christ deals with one another. But just imagine if that were to ripple in this church. Imagine if exponentially love were to abound even more and more in that way. Imagine how that would affect marriages. Imagine how that would affect people as they interact with coworkers and neighbors. Showing mercy the way you would want mercy shown to you. Walking in the purity that you would want others to walk with purity with respect to you. And so on. Well, in verses 27 uh, through 29, we have more principles. Verse 27 reads, For you will save the humble people, but you will bring down haughty looks. You will save the humble people. The humble here speaks of those who are, again, we've seen this word in our study of the Psalms. It's a word that speaks of the afflicted, the needy, the poor, the lowly, who perhaps through both circumstances and grace have learned humility. So when you see that word there, humble, for you will save the humble people, contextually within the book of Psalms, as you've already seen, it's basically speaking of the afflicted people, the needy people, who often, oftentimes through their circumstances and by the grace of God, are brought to a place of humility. The emphasis here, and I would agree with Derek Kidner, appears to be on circumstances rather than virtue, because that word humble speaks of being afflicted or needy. So the emphasis is on circumstances, but it's not divorced from the virtue of humility. To quote him again, they are those who are in need and they know it. Those are who the humble are. The next line, but God will bring down haughty looks. Haughty looks can literally mean exalted eyes, and it speaks of a proud demeanor. So if you see those words, like I don't know what haughty looks means, it basically speaks of a proud countenance. Uh, based on the, the commentary of Tremper Longman III, again, it means literally exalted eyes, haughty looks. We know that God opposes the proud, and at some point, He will bring down proud looks. He hates a proud look, Proverbs chapter 6, verse 16. So these are principles that were at work in David's deliverance, but I just want to remind us here, it's a principle of salvation. Those whom God saves from their sins are humble people. Again, to go back to the Beatitudes, very first one, blessed are the poor in what? Spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? It means to recognize your spiritual bankruptcy. To be humble. To, to come to a place where you're like, I have nothing. If I stand before God and were to try to make an account of my righteousness that should warrant my entry into His presence forever, I've got nothing. I'm bankrupt. I've sinned more than I could even recollect. I'm bankrupt of the righteousness that I need to enter into the kingdom of God. Somebody who's humble like that is somebody who, by the grace of God, will receive the kingdom of God because they see their need for the Son of God who died for their sins and had the righteousness that they can never secure on their own. I think the most dangerous thing about an arrogant look, to use language from this text, the haughty, but he will bring down haughty looks, the most dangerous, maybe not the most dangerous thing, but the most dangerous arrogant look is the one who looks at Jesus Christ and says, I don't need him. If somebody were to reject the exclusivity of what Jesus did, 
or to say, I don't need Him. I'm good enough. I'll roll the dice with other gods and other philosophies. I think that's the most dangerous, arrogant look. But by the grace of God, God can make the proud humble. And then oftentimes when we're in a place of being brought low, that's when we look up and we see our need for Him and the forgiveness of sins that only can be secured through Him. Then we come to verses 28 and 29. And I'm excited to end here today because I think for those who find themselves in a season of weariness and you feel as though you're sitting in darkness, I hope these words will be so refreshing to you. David says, For you will light my lamp. The Lord, or Yahweh my God, will enlighten my darkness. For by you I can run against a troop. By my God, I can leap over a wall. Start at verse 28. Verse 28, for you will light my lamp. Now, interestingly, um, David himself was referred to as the lamp of Israel in 2 Samuel chapter 21, verse 17, connoting that in some measure, his well-being and his kingship was connected to the welfare of Israel. Which, by the way, as a quick aside, I think should call to mind the connection between the welfare of the church and the enduring Savior. As long as the Savior continues to reign at the right hand of the Father, his church will be secure. Well, David was called the Lamp of Israel, but David knew that he was not Israel's Savior. As a matter of fact, in the parallel to this text, in 2 Samuel 22, verse 29, he says to the Lord, For you are my lamp, Lord. You are my lamp, Yahweh. So as the light of God illuminated David, that light would reflect to Israel. But that brings us to the idea presented here. He says, for you will light my lamp. Now notice, he's not looking to himself. As we've seen throughout the psalm, David's dependence is not on him. David's dependence is on Yahweh. For you will light my lamp. And the only reason why the lamp was going to stay burning is because God would continue to trim it and keep it burning. He had his hope in God. It wasn't him. For you will light my lamp. And just as a lamp lights a house, God would illuminate David's life. And if you say, well, what does that mean? I think in light of the next line, the metaphor appears to be a reference to the preservation of David's life. For you will light my lamp. The Lord my God will enlighten my darkness. God would be the one who would keep the lamp of David's life burning. And David would reign with the light of wisdom that God provided for him. Notice what David went on to say. He said, the Lord my God will enlighten my darkness. David so often saw the Lord do that. You go through 1 Samuel, uh, 2 Samuel, especially the beginning, and you see how God so often did that. Though you do see that towards the end as well. David so often saw the Lord turn his circumstances around. I call your attention to that pronoun there, the Lord my God will enlighten my darkness. Again, speaks to the relationship that he had with his God. The Lord, my God, will enlighten my darkness. Now again, this wasn't just for David to tell the people. It was for the people of God to sing. That's why it's in the book of Psalms. The people of God were meant to sing this. So I just want to say to those who might be sitting in darkness, this is a verse for you to hold on to. If you find yourself in a state of despondency or depression, if you're just heavy-hearted and you just feel like, I just can't get out of this, 
I've tried to get out of this, and I just feel like I can't. I walk around, and it's like I can't shake the heaviness that is on me. This is a verse for you to hold on to. The Lord my God will enlighten my darkness. And we'll see an example of how God did that in David's life when we get to verse 29 in a moment. But I just want to encourage you. And if you do feel like that, you're not alone. Some of those that God has used so mightily throughout history have felt like that. One of my favorite stories about Martin Luther is uh, concerning the time that he was in a season of great depression. So great that family, friends, fellow ministers couldn't get him out of the depression that he was in. Now, I don't recall what the uh, cause of that depression was, but he was in it, and he was in it for a while, and he felt like he couldn't get out of it. And then all of a sudden, one day, he saw his wife, Katie, put on black garbs as though she was going to a funeral. And when he sees her, he he says to her, who died? And she tells him, I guess God in heaven, seeing the way you are acting. And then from the account, he started to smile And then all of a sudden, if I remember correctly, he gave her a hug and it was as though the heaviness that had been on him for a while had been lifted because he saw how he was thinking wrongly. Like, I'm living as though God is not my hope. I'm living as though God is not my help. See, that little change of thinking could be the way in which God is enlightening your darkness. Just that change of perspective. You know, there was a time, to use language from Ephesians 2, where you were without God and without hope in the world. But if you are in Christ, that's never you. You are never without hope. You're always in the position of hope. A Christian should always be somebody who, metaphorically speaking, should always be looking for sunrise. Because you know that the morning is going to dawn. You don't know how long the night is going to be, so to speak, but you know it's not going to be forever. The morning will always dawn. The sun will always rise, so to speak. Because the worst case scenario for you is the best case scenario, so to speak. The worst case scenario being if you were to die would be the best case scenario because you'd be absent from the body and present with the Lord. So really, it's going to work out well for you. And you have these promises that don't stop even when you're feeling depressed and despondent. God's still your God. He's not leaving you or forsaking you. That doesn't change. He's still going to cause all things to work together for your good. That doesn't change. And so sometimes we just need a reminder that we might be living in despondency and depression and we might be acting as though God's not on His throne and as though God died when in reality He's right there with you. And there's nothing that can stop Him from loving you and shepherding you. He will light your candle. To use language from a a devotional that uh, Spurgeon wrote, The Divine Light in Darkness. He says, The lights which the Lord kindled in the beginning are shining still. The Lord's lamps may need trimming, but He does not put them out. Let me then listen to the nightingale sing in the dark. Expectations shall furnish me with music, and hope shall pitch the tune. Soon I shall rejoice in the candle of God's lighting. I am dull and dreary just now. Perhaps it is the weather or bodily weakness or the surprise of sudden trouble, but whatever has made the darkness, it is God alone who will bring the light. My eyes are unto Him alone. I shall soon have the candles of the Lord shining about me, and further on in His own good time, I shall be where they need no candle, neither light of the sun. Hallelujah. I want to show you part of the way in which God enlightens a person's darkness. 
going to one of my favorite, and there are many, uh, stories from the Old Testament. But let us look at verse 29. This is a way in which God often enlightens a person's darkness by what I would call enabling grace. Look at verse 29. For by you I can run against a troop. By my God I can leap over a wall. Now the language here calls to mind 1 Samuel chapter 30. I say that because the word here for troop in the Hebrew, it's a word that's not used all too much in the Old Testament, but it's used three times in 1 Samuel 30. And you're like, okay, well, what was going on in 1 Samuel 30? It's that occasion where you remember David has basically just been dismissed from the Philistines. Things had gotten so bad for David, if you recall, that not only, he went from being like the superstar of Israel, right? When the people were singing, Saul has slain his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. He was the superstar of Israel. He went from that, from working in the court of Saul, he's playing, he's playing the harp and so on, and it's, it's great. He is the, he's the big thing in Israel, to all of a sudden being the most wanted man, not in a good way, in Israel. And all of a sudden, Saul turns on him, Saul starts pursuing his life. Saul, who had given him his daughter as wife, took away his daughter from David, even though she was his wife. David is just on the run. And then in 1 Samuel 22, at the cave of Adullam, we remember that the discontented and those who were in debt and some of David's family joined David. So who does he get to come alongside of him? You know, those who are discontented and in debt, they come to him and they join alongside of him. But then he's on the run nonstop. So not only is he on the run nonstop, but he thinks, as I've told you before in our study of Psalm 18, he thought there was but a step away, he was but a step away from death. So eventually, what does he do? God had protected him while he was in the land of Judea. But eventually, he leaves the land of Judea. And David becomes, if you will, David of Gath. He goes and he joins the Philistines for a little while. And he's getting ready to join the Philistines. Now, I don't know what he's going to do. You can listen to the messages that I preached in 1 Samuel. I don't know if when the Philistines were getting ready to do battle with Israel, if David was going to turn on the Philistines in the middle of the battle with Israel and so on. But he's getting ready. As they're getting ready to go to battle with Israel, he's there with the Philistines. And what happens? You can see it in 1 Samuel 29. The Philistines basically say, we don't want you around here anymore. <laughs> so now he's been, he's been left by his own people, his own people who have been hunting him. Saul is chasing him. His wife has been taken from him. And the Philistines say, we don't want you now either. Enter 1 Samuel 30. So 1 Samuel 30, they're on their way back to the, to the land of the Philistines. To the land of the Philistines, they're going to a place called Ziklag. As they're approaching Ziklag, when apparently David's with his soldiers, but the women and the children were left in this place, Ziklag. And all of a sudden, as they come to it, they come to find that the town had been overthrown. They don't know who overthrew it at this point, but it's been overthrown. So imagine approaching the town. You've been like cast aside yet again, and you're coming home. You're hoping to see your family. At this point, he's got two other wives, and they're hoping to see the men. They're hoping to see their wives and their children, and so on. And all of a sudden, you see smoke rising because the fire is burning. And you get there, and no one's there. Everybody is gone. The wives are gone. The children, is, the children are gone. And all of a sudden, it's like all hope set sail. And in that moment, we're told in 1 Samuel 30 that he just begins to weep. And not just him, all the men who were with him, they wept until they could weep no longer. And if you think it couldn't get worse for David, I think up until this point in his life, this is the worst point in his life. And if you think it couldn't get any worse for him at this point, because now it's like 
my family's gone, and the families of the people that I care about and have been with me, they're gone. If you think it can't get any worse, it does. Because the men who were with David started to speak of stoning him. Great day for David. <laughs> yeah, basically, everybody's forsaking you, and then the ones who are with you, they're like, all right, we're done. Or we've put up with enough having to deal with you. We're getting chased from place to place. We're done. And then if you look in 1 Samuel um, chapter 30, we see in verse 6, it says, Moreover, David was greatly distressed because the people spoke of stoning him. For all the people were embittered, each one because of his sons and his daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. You notice how people lost their stuff, by the way, and they weren't so concerned about their stuff. Just a little glimpse into what's important in life. They weren't like, oh, my stuff, in comparison with, say, for instance, sons and daughters. So David has people stoning him, but what does David do? David strengthened himself in the Lord. And you say, what does that look like? What does it mean that David strengthened himself in the Lord? I think we find the answer to that, or the closest thing to the best answer for that, in 1 Samuel. Because in 1 Samuel, if you were to go back to 1 Samuel 23, verse 16, we read something that I think gives us insight as into what that means right there. We're told, I'm going to read from verse 15 of 1 Samuel 23. Now David became aware that Saul had come to seek his life while David was in the wilderness at Ziph at Horesh. And David, Saul's son, arose and went to David at Horesh and encouraged or literally strengthened his, strengthened his hand in God. He said to him, Do not be afraid, because the hand of Saul my father will not find you, and you will be king over Israel, and I will be next to you, and Saul my father knows that also. So how did Jonathan strengthen David's hands? He didn't get everything right in that statement, because he didn't know what was going to happen to him in that moment, but he knew the promise God had made to David. So how did he strengthen David's hands? How did David strengthen himself in the Lord? I think it was by being reminded of the promises of God. He was reminded of the promises of God. And now if you know the rest of the story, what happens in the rest of the story, it's amazing. David strengthens himself in God and all of a sudden things change. How did he strengthen himself in God? Probably remembering the promises of God, the promises that God made to him. All of a sudden he feels stronger. And then what does David do? He calls for... Abiathar, the priest, the son of Amalek, to come to him. And he says, please, bring me the ephod. So Abiathar brought the ephod to David. And David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I pursue this band or this troop? Shall I overtake them? And he said to him, Pursue, for you will surely overtake them, and you will surely rescue all. Couple of quick notes here, right? David is strengthened in God, and what does he do? He wants to inquire of the Lord. So, through the priest, in that context, in the Old Testament, he's inquiring of the Lord Shall I go and pursue them, and will I overtake them? Now, you've got to see the amazing providence of God in this. If you were to ask, Why were the Amalekites even going after David? And I'll be brief with this, but I think it helps fill in a little context. David, while among the Philistines, had carried out raids against the Amalekites. And so this might be an act of revenge from the Amalekites' perspective. If you were also to say, well, why is this happening as well? Why is this happening? 
Well, Saul didn't do what he was supposed to do. Remember, he was supposed to take out all the Amalekites, and he didn't do that. God could have used tornadoes or earthquakes, but Saul and Israel was to be his instrument, but he didn't do that. Why is this happening? Maybe because David had left the land that he was supposed to be in. Now he's in the land of the Philistines. And while he's in the land of the Philistines, his family is vulnerable while he's away from them. So there are all kinds of things that are happening here. But I want you to see the grace of God in his providential dealings with David. Why didn't the Amalekites just kill everybody? Why, when they ransacked Ziklag, did they just not kill the women and the children? Why did they take everybody captive so that God tells him, you're going to regain everything? Nothing's going to be lost. God was likely using the sinfulness of the Amalekites against them and for David's good. The likely explanation is the Amalekites thought, you know what? If we don't kill these people, we could probably sell these people or make them our slaves. So let's keep them alive. So God providentially uses the sinfulness of the Amalekites, their own covetous desires, to preserve the lives of those that David is about to rescue. But then the providence of God gets even more amazing and how he uses the wickedness of the wicked against them. If you read on in the story, David and his men go. But where are they going? They don't know where they're going. But God told him, you shall overtake this troop. Go. And as they're going, who do they find? An Egyptian man who happened to be discarded by the Amalekites. It was, just metaphorically speaking, a chance encounter. But we know it was divine providence at work. He was discarded. The man had gone three days, I believe, without bread and without water, and he was basically on the verge of death. And he happened to be a man who was discarded by the Amalekites, and he happens to tell David that they had just ransacked Ziklag. Can you show me where these men are? David essentially asks The Egyptian, sure, you promised to preserve my life, we're good. (laughs) And then by the grace of God, enabled by God, David was able to run against the troop. And he was able to rescue his family and the family of the men that he was with. What an example. So when when you see David say here in Psalm 18, verse 29, For by you I can run against the troop. You're getting, you should get glimpses of 1 Samuel 30 and God's providential grace and God's enabling grace. And you walk in those very things as a Christian. You're not called to do the same things that David was called to do, but you are granted, and as we're going to see next week, Lord willing, enabling grace that strengthens you. And you have providential grace that is always at work at every moment around you. What a reason to be hopeful in the midst of seasons where we could so feel without hope. In that second line, briefly in closing, David says, By my God, I could leap over a wall. This wasn't some like random, you know, gymnastic thing that David was impressed that he could do. The language here likely calls to mind the events of 2 Samuel 5, where they captured Jerusalem. The Jebusites who were in charge of Jerusalem, they thought that their fortress was like unassailable. More about that if you were to listen to the message that I preached on that text. But by God's strength, he was able to leap over a wall. They boasted in it so much, the Jebusites. They said, the blind and the lame will repel you in 2 Samuel 5, 6. In other words, like, these walls are so great, even the blind and the lame could hold you back. Well, by God's power, David was able to leap over a wall. You could sing these lyrics too. I just want to encourage you by saying there's no barrier, I'm quoting uh, Willem Van Gemmeren in this, there's no barrier that the Lord cannot overcome. What barrier do you have? You're like, George, I can't get over my past. No, 
by God, you can leap over the wall of your past. God, George, I, I, I just can't get over this depression. Well, your God is the lamp who will enlighten your darkness. And even if you still find yourself sitting in it, I want to be reminding, I want to be reminding you that He's there with you in the midst of it. By your God, you can leap over a wall. I can't get over my lust problem. If God is your God, you can leap over that wall too. Whatever the wall is, if you are in Christ Jesus, the wall is a wall that you can leap over. There's no sin. Now, obviously, you can see I'm speaking here within the context of battling certain sins that are besetting. Romans 6.14, there's no sin that shall have dominion over you. See, David was called to do war against those like the Philistines, Malachites, and others. You and I are called to do war with our sin. Romans 8. We take up the sword of the Spirit to mortify the deeds of the flesh. For our enemies, in the flesh, humanly speaking, no, we love our enemies. We pray for those who persecute us. But when it comes to our own sin, when we see the sinfulness in our lives, we don't say, I'm just going to be subject to this my whole life. No, you take the sword of the Spirit and you trust that by God's strength you could leap over that wall. I don't care what it is. And if you start to settle in it and say, no, this is just a wall I'm going to sit behind for the rest of my life. No! Whatever it is, by God's grace, you can leap over it. So, so much in this text. And Lord willing, next week, uh, we'll close out our study of Psalm 18. Well, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I thank you, Lord. I thank you that as was evident in David's life in 1 Samuel 30, Lord, whereas you did reward him according to his righteousness in the way that you delivered him from the hand of Saul, I thank you, Lord, that your mercy is evident in a case like 1 Samuel 30, where you didn't deal with him as his sins deserved, Lord. You are so gracious, and however you administrate your sovereign superintending of this world, I, Lord, and we bow the knee to your perfect goodness and justice that is at work at all times, and the infinite wisdom that is behind that sovereign superintending. Father, in light of this text, I pray that you would help us, Lord, to grow in that grace of treating other people in the way that we would want to be treated or in the way that you would have us to treat them, Lord. I pray, Father, that by your grace, we would not let other things and other people crowd you out of the place that you deserve in our lives, the place of preeminence. So, Father, help us to have that vertical relationship in its right place where you are priority, And help us, Lord, to have those horizontal things in place where we treat people godly. Father, I pray for everyone in this room that you would protect us from that sin of pride and that we would grow in the grace of humility, Lord. I pray if there would be anyone in this place, Lord, who hasn't come to Christ as Savior, that there would be that working of your Spirit where we are humbled and we see our need for the forgiveness of sins and your great grace in providing your Son as the one who bore sins on behalf of sinners like us. Oh, Father, may that humility lead to a reception of your Son as Savior and Lord. Father, I thank you for the hope that we can have, no matter where we are, no matter what goes on in the world around us, no matter where we be, whether it be Ziklag or Staten Island or anywhere, you are the lamp that can enlighten any darkness. 
And I thank you, Heavenly Father, that even if there be somebody who would feel that they're at a proverbial bottomless pit, all they have to do in that moment is look up because they're not far away from the throne of grace. The throne of grace is a, a kind of traveling throne in that sense. Wherever we are, there we can go to it. So Lord, I pray for those who have found themselves in seasons of heaviness. Lord, would you enlighten their darkness? And Lord, would you provide them with fresh measures of enabling grace whereby they'd be able to leap over the walls that are in front of them. And may they grow in the grace of Christ's likeness and run in the freedom for which Christ has set them free. Lord, may it be we ask these things for your glory and for the good of your people and the good of others. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.